still coming. Um, hopefully I didn't scare everybody, didn't scare everybody away, obviously, uh, on Monday. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I will expand the screen when I put the lecture slides up there. So you're not, it's a little too small, I think, for those in the back to try to have the both up here at the same time. But when they put this in, they didn't put a separate whiteboard for any notes or anything. So I have a choice of doing that or writing on the walls, which they wouldn't appreciate. So um, I do like to put the assignments up and just mention those each day, just so your keeps in your head as to what's coming due over the next couple of weeks. So the, the three big things coming up right now would be the extra credit assignment that I gave out. I know a couple of you already done that and already have credit for it. That's great. Uh, if not, go ahead and either subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel. Send me a quick email from your Hawk mail. Uh, you've got till next Wednesday to do that, but I don't see you until next Wednesday. So I'll remind you next Wednesday. You've still got Wednesday to do it, but get it done this weekend at some point. Just send me that email. I send you back a photo file. You put it up there on uh, Blackboard, D2L, sorry. I, use, I do another school that uses Blackboard. If I say Blackboard, I mean D2L. So I'm not, it's not two different things. It's just me speaking improperly. So put it up there, and you get the, you get the 15 points for the, for the assignment. So that's the first thing you've got coming due. Uh, second thing coming due is the solar observations. Not the whole project, just one observation. So hopefully over the next week and a half, you can get one. Um, again, all I need for that, is, all I'm going to ask for is a copy of your data sheet. So make, make, don't give me your original, keep it but I'll keep your copy. That way, every once in a while, somebody loses one halfway through the semester and I've got a copy that has at least some of your observations so you can get them back. Uh, but I just need a copy of your data sheet and I just need one successful observation by the ninth. If you get two or three, that's great. You're really working ahead, but at least one by then. And I will give you credit for that. I'm sorry. Explain that again? For the observation? All I need is one observation that you've made, one shadow length measurement that you've made. So you submit the data table, which will show the date, the time, the sky conditions, and how tall your object was and how long your shadow was. You don't need to do any calculations. I'll do those. Okay, and I, I was noticing you, you were saying like a 12, 15? 115. 115 right now, it'll be 12, 15 after the time change. So as close as you can get. I mean, if it's a half an hour before that, that's fine. If it's a half an hour after that, that's fine. Too much more than that starts to push it, and you'll still start to get less accurate. But you just need one some point in that time. So if you get time this weekend, um, that, that's great. Just try to get one, and then I'll take, a, I'll take a look at those. I'll give you some feedback and let you know on September 9th, there's problems. Let's try to get this fixed, figure out what we might be doing wrong, rather than doing that in November when we're finishing up the project. And then homework one, I put due September 11th. It might be the following Monday. I'd rather put it a little earlier and push it back. So right now, looking at what we have to cover and of course the fact that we're missing a, lecture, a full lecture day, today's a lab day, so I only have a half of the lecture. Um, we won't get, we'll probably be through all the homework one stuff by that time. If we run a little later, it might get pushed off, but most likely it'll be due right around, the, right around the 11th. I won't make it due any earlier for some reason. We get way ahead, I'm not going to say, oh, now it's due on the 9th. So it's due the 11th. If it has to be delayed, it will be, it'll be delayed a little bit. And then the exam, which is scheduled for that week because of the holiday, will be the following week. I'll give you that information as we get a little further along, try to keep you ahead. But there will not be an exam 
the week of the 11th. There's no way we'll get through all of the material and have you got the homeworks in by that, by that point. So I'll put this up each day. I'll leave it up at the beginning of class, then I'll, I'll clear it. Um, the other thing, and I'll remind you at the beginning, if, if you didn't sign in, I think most of you did, if you came in later, just make sure you sign in on your way out. I'm not marking you late, so it doesn't matter when you signed in, but make sure you do sign in because if you're not on the attendance sheet, you don't get credit for being here. So I want to give you those points for actually having been here. So if you haven't signed in, make sure you go ahead and get that, that signed in. All right, questions. Any other questions there? All right, then let's see if we can. Up oh, that, that one. Remember which button to push. There we go. So hide that and we get to actually see our picture, which I was going to show you yesterday. I had it all up there to show yesterday, Monday, last time. Um, I was going to show you the picture from Monday. This is usually what I start off the class with. Of course, the first day I want to start off with the syllabus, so I usually have that up on the screen instead of, our, uh, instead of the picture. Um, but this is what I will start off with. This is a website that has been doing an astronomical picture for well over 20 years now. So you can go back to their archives. They've picked out a picture for 20 years and they go back and they put a picture up and there's a description that one of the astronomers has written a description of it. So I like to just do it as a starting point for the class. It's today's picture. They're not tied into our class, so they don't know what we're talking about. So we get a picture of a galaxy. We'll talk about galaxies later on. We might at the end of the semester get a picture of a planet. We might get, you know, we might get anything. There's all sorts of different astronomical things. So it won't necessarily tie into what we're doing, but it may get something that we're going to cover or have covered, or maybe something that we didn't cover, like nice, nice pictures from Mars that we're not going to really go over in this class, and you get a chance to get a little bit of a taste of it. Will they be on the test, right? Isn't that always the question? Yes, in a way, they're extra credit. I do make up some multiple choice extra credit questions based on the pictures that I showed you. So the ones that I showed you in class, I'll come up with a multiple choice extra credit question for this. So you'll end up with like four or five chances for extra credit. So on your key point sheets, you can make a couple notes about the pictures we've covered in class. If I don't show it in class, it doesn't count. So you don't have to worry about tomorrow's picture. You don't have to worry about Monday's picture when we don't have class. So today's that I've show, I'm showing you, next Wednesday's, and so on, just the ones that we look at in class. Um, all right, so this picture is actually a spiral galaxy. So jumping way ahead to stuff that we're going to be talking about in probably end of October into November, we'll start talking about galaxies. Uh, galaxies are large groupings of stars. So this is something much like our own Milky Way. And it's an example of a barred spiral galaxy. Spiral galaxy just means it has the spiral arm stretching out from the center. A barred spiral kind of has this bar elongated section going through the middle. So there's two different types. Galaxies are about equally split between them. And in fact, our Milky Way is an example of a barred spiral. So if we could travel outside our galaxy and look back down, this might be something like the, the, something that we would see. Uh, spiral galaxies uh, are distinguished by a couple of things. First of all, they have the central portion, they have the spiral arms which stand out. The spiral arms, if you notice the coloring, are very blue. They're blue because of the stars that make them up. They're made up of a lot of blue stars. There's lots of other stars there too. But the blue stars, as we'll learn, are some of the brightest and hottest. They give off the most energy. So if we put a blue star right where our sun is, 
nice hot stars, we'd be gone. Earth would be vaporized way too hot to be able to support life. That's how much energy they put out. I mean, you think about how much energy our sun is putting out, we're only getting a little tiny portion of that, the little bit that the Earth intersects. So a blue star is putting out tremendous amounts of energy. So they dominate the light from these outer regions. So we get a lot of blue areas and you get some pink. The pinkish red is actually hydrogen gas. It's not red stars, it's actually hydrogen gas that is being excited. And those are all signs that galaxies like this are still forming stars. So we have star formation going on because those blue stars, they don't live very long. When I talk about length, remember it's astronomical long. These, these stars only live a couple million years. I know, to us a couple million years is forever. Galaxies are 10 billion years old. So that's a very tiny fraction of its life. So in other, in other words, in order to see these galaxies, that these stars that only live a few million years, if they formed 100 million years ago, they'd all be gone. If they formed a billion years ago, they'd all be gone now. We would not see them. In order for us to still be seeing them today, they had to have formed within the last few million years. So we know that this type of galaxy, a spiral, is still forming stars currently. Or at least within the last few million years, it's been forming stars. Other galaxies we'll see don't have this. There are other galaxies that have not formed stars for many billions of years and don't have. We don't, and the telltale sign is that we don't see any of these blue stars. So again, we'll come back more to galaxies uh, later on, but get a little bit of a taste of it here today. So, questions? Bless you. No, no, no. All righty. Um, let's go ahead and get started. I did want to mention two things from the class. I did do a couple of things up on the class uh, site, so I wanted to make sure you were aware of those. I believe I mentioned that I'd put the uh, articles if you wanted to try to get a head start on the article, article review. Uh, those are now in the introduction. So if you click on content, I'll go back to the beginning there, and the introduction module, that's where you had the syllabus and you had some other information. There's a link to a possible articles for review. I actually had it later on in the section where it was due, but then you couldn't, wouldn't be able to access it right now. So you can click on that. There's 15 or 20 articles that are all perfectly acceptable. So if you want to go skim through those, see if any look interesting. They're all PDFs. You can download, print them out, take a look at them. See if there's one that's interesting. You're welcome to find your own, but these are all, you know these are all good. So you're welcome to go ahead and click on that, and it will just give you, you know, there's one on Mars. Uh, Trying to think of what else. There's one about the Big Bang, you know, what came before the Big Bang. Uh, Alpha Centauri. So a couple of others that may be interesting to you, and they're all within the last year, so they're all good for any of the three reviews that you choose. So you're welcome to pick a couple of these articles to be the ones that you choose to do. If you want to find your own, of course, that's great as well. I did want to let you know that was up there for you. And then I also have, I'm going to try this, I, usually, I lo upload the lectures to iTunes, so I am recording them. My phone worked out really well for that, so I'm continuing with that for right now. Uh, I also put them up on the class site, so I actually put the lecture from last time. There's an audio for it in lesson one, so if you want to go replay the hour and a half, that, if you're really that bored and you want to replay the hour and a half that I took, sometimes it's nice if you just want to replay the beginning, remembering what I said about assignments due or things. You can go play. You don't have to play the whole thing, obviously. You can stop it at any time. 
but it's there. Or if you're sure I talked about something partway through class, you can skim through and at least listen to it. So I'll put those up there as well. So I loaded the first one. I'll load this one afterwards uh, today. So I just wanted to let you know of those two things before we go ahead and get started. So other questions, anything before we jump into finishing up chapter one? And as I recall, we'd done the first part, and we're ready for the second. We had not started on numbers yet, right? Numbers, yuck. I get to do numbers in lab today, too. So uh, numbers in science, numbers in math and science are really hard to remove. There's always going to be a little bit of it, of it there. So one of the things I want to talk about for this first part is numbers and light travel time and what that means. So what we want to look at is, you know, what are the numbers? Numbers in astronomy are really big and really small. We get a combination of the two, uh, really big and really small numbers. And that's why they're expressed in scientific notation. But we get gigantic numbers. I mean, the distance to the nearest star is measured in trillions of kilometers. Th those numbers have no meaning to us. I can't understand trillions. I can't, I can't comprehend billions. I, mean, I can say the number, I can calculate with it, but I can't understand what a billion is. I mean, you want to count to a billion? Go ahead, count one number per second. 30, 33 years from now, you'll be done. Just to count to a billion. A trillion, forget it, because you've got to do that a thousand times. So, I mean, it's that, they're just not numbers that, while we know them and we use them, they're not things that we really comprehend. So we try to make things into smaller versions. So one of the things we do is scientific notation. Use a little bit smaller number here, just the distance from the Earth to the Sun. That's 150 million kilometers. So 150 million, still a pretty big number. Go ahead and shut that. Um, still a pretty big number, but not horrible, not horrible. But we can write that as 1.5 times 10 to the eighth. It's much more convenient, especially when you start talking about some of the larger distances we get out there. It's a lot easier to write things in scientific notation. So you'll see those in the textbook, that things are written this way instead of writing out these. If you want to talk about the mass of our sun, uh, ten to the, 2 times 10 to the 33rd grams. You want to write a 2 and 33 zeros and keep writing that out? Or you want to write 2 times 10 to the 33rd? There's a reason that scientists use this, not to try to confuse people, but to make things much more convenient because some of those numbers get very, very large or when we talk about atomic distances, very, very tiny. So scientific notation is you can convert the number to scientific notation by moving the decimal point until there is only one number to the left. So in 1.5, uh, 150 million, the decimal point would be here. As I write, you'd move it all the way back there until there's just one number, just the one is left to the left of that. So that would be all that you'd, ha all that you'd have. Um, I'm going to give you a couple examples on the, next, on the next screen. So don't worry about getting it all down here. I'll go over a couple of examples coming up. But we move the decimal point, there's only one place. You count the number of places that you moved. And then your exponent up here is going to be positive if you moved to the left. 
So here we went from this section to this section and moved to the left. That's a positive exponent. If you move to the right, it's going to have a negative exponent. And I'm going to give you an example of each of those. And I have to clear what I marked on there. Otherwise, it will sit there on each screen. So, all right, so let's look, let me look at a couple examples here. First of all, let's look at a big number, 314 million. We move the decimal, decimal point, which is here at the end, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight places to the left. You drop off the zeros. You don't write all the zeros in. It's just 3.14. And the times 10 is representing all the zeros, all the decimal places you moved. And this would be times 10 to the eighth power. So we can write 314 million is 3.14 times 10 to the eighth. You can do the same thing with really small numbers. So 0. 0.00004563. Now we're going to move the decimal point the other way to the right, one, two, three, four, five places, and then that will leave just one non-zero number to the left, the four, and you'd write it as 4.563 times 10, and you moved it to the right five places, so it's 10 to the negative fifth. So just some ways of being able to convert, if you need to convert, sometimes you're trying to do a calculation, put a number into your calculator and it's written in scientific notation and it's not too tremendous, some people find it easier to convert it. So 3 times 10 to the third, you know, maybe you'd rather write 3,000 and put that in your calculator than trying to enter it in scientific notation. So there are some good, way, good reasons to be able to convert back and forth between them when you're using a calculator. You can enter it either way. You'll get the same answer either way if you're entering it correctly. So scientific notation is one way we use of simplifying numbers. Um, something else that we use are the metric units. So SI or metric units. Um, for all scientific measurements are made this way. So although I did tell you, you know, your solar observations, if you've got an inch ruler, that's no problem. You can use that for those. But pretty much everything else, any measurements that are done in science are done using metric units. That's measuring distances in meters or kilometers if you're measuring really big distances or centimeters or millimeters if you're using really small distances. Seconds, now that's the same for everyone, right? Everyone uses seconds or other units of time are the same. And then kilogram for mass. So a kilogram for mass as the measure of how much material something has. In the English units, what do we use? We use feet and inches for lengths, miles, yards, all sorts of different things. Uh, for mass, well, the, actually the unit of mass in English units is the slug. A pound is not a unit of mass, it's a unit of weight. So if you weigh a certain number of pounds, that's how much you weigh here on the Earth in the Earth's gravity. You would weigh a different amount if you went to the moon because the gravity's different. So pounds are actually weight. Kilograms here is actually mass. You don't, you're measuring how much material you have. Now, on Earth, they're, they're somewhat interchangeable. There's a conversion between the two because the Earth's gravity is the same. It doesn't matter whether I'm here or down the street. The Earth's gravity is essentially the same. But if you change, if you go up into space, your mass is still the same. But you're weightless. 
Right? You're weightless because the gravity is less. There's no, there's no gravity. If you go out into a spaceship out in deep space, there's no gravity. Therefore, no, you don't have any weight. But you still have mass. You've still got material making you up. You're still there. So there's a difference between what we use as mass and what we use as weight. So the important one is, kilo, is kilogram for mass, grams, um, milligrams, depending on how much material you're actually using. So those are the units that we use, and you'll see those used you know, throughout the textbook. Things will be given in meters, uh, kilograms, etc. for most things. Uh, in some cases, we will use the astronomical units, things like light years and uh, other, other ones as well. And anything else? Well, there's actually several more of these. That These are the main ones. There's ones for electrical charge and other units as well. But for the most part, anything else we get can be, can, comes from these. So if we want to measure a velocity, that's a distance, how far you went, divided by a time. So velocity, meters per second, is how fast you went. You take the length, you divide it by the time, and you get the velocity. Density is a mass, kilograms, divided by a volume. Well, volume is just a version of length, right? Length goes one direction, volume is just one, two, three directions. So length times width times height gives you a volume of a cubic uh, object. So you could use the, you can use these to determine all of the other units that we use as well. They all come from them. So you'll see things like velocity in meters per second. You'll see densities in grams per cubic centimeter or kilograms per cubic meter. That's just how we measure those units. But they all come back to these same primary units. All right, so let's look a little bit about the distances. Our nearest star, other than the sun, yeah, sun, sun's a little bit closer than that, but the nearest star is 40 trillion kilometers. So it's written out there. Again, that's one of the reasons we go to scientific notation. Instead of constantly writing this out, I can just write it very simply as 4 times 10 to the 13th. We can't really com comprehend 40 trillion. I mean, it's just not a number that our minds can wrap around. 40? Yeah, I can, I can count to 40, right? I can, I can understand that number. I can't understand 40 trillion. We like small numbers. If we want to measure the distance to, let's see, from here to San Francisco, I'll give you it to you in miles, right? I could give it to you in inches. Would that number of inches mean anything to you? If I told you it was so many numbers of millions of inches, and I don't know, I'm just making up something off the top of my head, but I mean, you can't, we just can't, it's not, it's, we want small numbers. Our minds like nice small numbers. So what we use is a term called the light year. So a light year is just another way of measuring distance. Just like you can measure distances in feet or miles or inches, you can measure them in light years. We can use the light year because the speed of light has a specific value. Light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. Incredibly fast, 300,000 kilometers every second, not per hour, that's per second. So in one second, a light ray leaving and traveling off into space has traveled 300,000 kilometers out beyond the moon in a second, boom. But that's still, compared to the, empty, the vastness of space, that's still not very much because 
in nearest, the nearest star is four light years away. It takes like four years to get to the nearest star. So in one year, light will travel 10 trillion kilometers. 10 trillion. That's, tre- and that's tremendous. I mean, we think of 10 trillion. Oh my gosh, that's, that's gigantic. You've got to do that four times to get to the nearest star. Can't get how empty everything out there, how much space there is between us and our nearest neighbors. So in light years, the nearest star is a little over four light years away. I can understand four. I still don't understand the distance. The distance is still beyond what I can get. But at least I can think about four and I can compare things. If I start trying to compare things that are 40 trillion kilometers and 80 trillion kilometers and 120, I mean, my mind just starts to go. I can't wrap my head around them. But if you say four light years and something else is eight light years away, oh, well, our minds, at least we know it's twice as far away. We may not actually be able to comprehend the distance, but the relative distances we can get. And that's what's helpful using much smaller numbers and much more manageable numbers. Now, within the solar system, this is too big. A light year is too, mu- is too much. So 10 trillion kilometers is, gets us well outside our solar system. So we have to use other units within the solar system. And what we use is the astronomical unit. The astronomical unit is defined to be the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. It's not constant. We're not always the same distance from the Sun. Sometimes we're a little bit closer in January. Sometimes we're a little bit further away in July. So distances have nothing to do with the seasons then. We'll talk about that in a couple chapters. How far we are away from the Sun doesn't affect the seasons. If it did, then summer would be summer everywhere on the Earth. But it's summer right now here, but if you go down to Australia, it's wintertime. So we'll talk about seasons later on, but the reason it's an average distance, on average, how far we are away from the sun. Sometimes we're a little bit closer, a couple percent closer. Sometimes we're a couple percent further away. Not a real big difference, or we would start to notice it. So using this, we convert 150 million kilometers is now one, one astronomical unit. And we can use that to compare other objects. So how can we then compare um, the distances? We can say Mars would be one and a half astronomical units from the sun. So instead of saying Mars is 225 million kilometers away from the sun, it's one and a half astronomical units. Again, we're making the numbers smaller so that our minds can uh, comprehend them. Neptune would be about 30 astronomical units away on average, from the sun. That's out at the edge of, our, edge, edge of our planetary system, at least. So we just find it's, get, it's a lot easier to comprehend one mile. You know what a mile is. If you've run a mile, walked a mile, right? You have some idea of what that distance is. 5,280 feet, maybe, because you know that's a mile. 63,360 inches. If the conversions weren't up there, you wouldn't know that's a mile. You would have no idea, I assume. Maybe, maybe somebody does, but for the most part, you wouldn't realize that 63,000 inches happens to be a mile. So our minds just do a lot better with the smaller numbers. So the more manageable we can make the numbers, the better it is for being able to understand things. All right, um, light travel time was the other thing I wanted to look at here. 
And one of the things that we had is that light travels at some speed. So 300,000 kilometers per second, tremendously fast, but still slow compared to some of the immense distances. The moon is about a light second away. It takes about one second for light to get to the moon. Well, big deal, one second, right? Um, it takes light a tiny fraction of a second to get from me to you. So you don't see me as I am right now. You might see me as I was a billionth of a second ago. Well, a billionth of a second is a less than a blink of an eye, so it's really not going to make any significant difference. As we get further and further away, though, it becomes more important. The sun, light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to get here. If the sun blows up right now at, what are we pushing, nine o'clock today? At 9.08, we'd still be waiting 30 seconds before we'd know about it. We'd have eight minutes before we'd even know that the sun had blown up. Now, the sun's not going to blow up. The sun is not the type of star that can ever do that. But if something were to happen to the sun, we would not know about it for eight minutes. Alpha Centauri, nearest star other than the sun, actually very similar to the sun, 4.3 years. So it could have... Couldn't have, but if it, for some reason it exploded in, in August of 2015, we'd still have a couple of months before we'd know about it. Because the light hasn't gotten here yet. We, don't, we can't learn about anything instantly. If it blows up right now, somebody blows up Alpha Centauri. Well, let's see, it's 2019, 20, 21, 22, 23, 2023. End of 2023, beginning of 2024, before we'd know it gets worse and worse, right? The further out we get, a nice galaxy like the Andromeda galaxy, a nearby one, two and a half million years. Now, galaxies don't change much in two and a half million years. So if you ask me what does Andromeda look like today, probably looks a lot like we see it. But we won't know for sure. I mean, in two and a half million years, some of its stars could have blown up. That's not an unusual lifetime for some of the more massive stars to have become supernovae. That light, that information is still traveling to us. So we don't know what anything looks like right now. The closer it is, the closer we are. There are some galaxies out there that are billions of light years away. As we see them now as they were before the Earth and the solar system formed. The light had to travel all that time to get to us. So we never know any. So it gets, it gets worse the further you get out. When we get to the end of the class and we're talking about the edge of the universe... You know, we're talking about things that happened a long, long time ago, and we don't know what any of it is like right now. We can't because the light does not have time to get to us yet. So essentially, we see everything as it was a certain amount of time ago. Sun, eight and a half minutes. Alpha Centauri, a little over four years. Andromeda Galaxy, 25 million years. And if I remember correctly, our galaxy that we saw today was about 55 million light years away. Still a relatively nearby one, but all those blue, a lot of those blue stars are probably gone. Some of those blue stars only live 5, 10 million years. So we see them, but they're, they're not there anymore. If you could instantaneously transport yourself to that galaxy, I don't know how, but if you could, the same stars that we're seeing on Earth today would not be there. So what, is it, what it really means is that we can never see anything, any object, as it is right now. And we're also looking back in time when we look out in space. 
It's actually a good thing in a way. For some things, it can be frustrating. For other things, it can be really good because I can look back and I can see galaxies as they were right after the universe formed. What did galaxies look like 13 billion years ago? I can go check. Right? We can go look. We can look at galaxies that are that far away, and that's what they looked like that time ago. So we can actually look at galaxies right after their, their formation. So it's a good thing and a bad thing because we never see anything as it is right now. Everything is constantly changing, and it takes time for that information to travel to us. All right, so summarizing this section, um, we talked about scientific notation, looking at large and small numbers. I talked about using metric units for scientific measurements. Um, distances, we talked about the light year, the astronomical unit as ways to measure them, as ways to use those. So you'll see that terminology used. And we never see anything as it is uh, right now. Now the last section of chapter one that I want to cover kind of goes through and looks at the very big and the very small. So what I want to do is, you know, we can look at some of the objects in the universe, and I'm not going to have time to go through all of this. Uh, this is actually a website that I'm going to link to and uh, play up here. But you can zoom outward to the edge. You can zoom back into very small objects. If you've ever seen in a science class, there's a powers of 10 video where they'll take you from, you know, human size and they'll zoom you out to the edge of the universe. It's very similar to that, but it's an interactive website that you can use. And let me see if this will load properly. I'm going to have to. Let's see. If I can get this loading, I have to get the... Oh, let's get out of the slides there and get to the... There we go. Uh, let me... We don't need the music. Let me turn the music out so I'm not talking over that. Uh, but this starts out, this is kind of a scale of the universe with a slider. So you have things that you can slide through. Uh, this was actually one of the pictures of the day. There's a website up here if you want to see it. I can um, htwins.net slash scale2 if you want to go find that or just look up scale of the universe. It should come up. Uh, but these are some objects that are typical sized, human sized. So there's a human, there's a beach ball, um, various other objects, dodo bird, giant earthworm. And actually, if you click on any of these, the information is there. So if you want to know something about this flower, you know, flower is about a meter in size, and it's the largest single flower in the world that can weigh up to 10 kilograms. I can click through this and still learn things because I don't know about all of them. I mean, the astronomical ones I know pretty well, but some of the others are things I can still learn about. As you zoom out, you get to larger and larger objects, and the human is still there, but you try to get a sense of scale as you go out. And I'm going to try to get out to some of the astronomical things because first it's going to be Earth-sized objects. And you may recognize some of these areas. Starting to get into some of the asteroids. Halley's Comet, you may have heard of. That's one of the comets here. And again, if you click on it, it will tell you how big it is, uh, which is quite small, and how it compares to some things here on Earth. So Halley's Comet, Deimos, which is one of the moons of Mars, you know, are not that different than the size of Mount Everest here on Earth. So not all astronomical objects are tremendously large in size. And we can go out a little bit further. Uh, there's some other moons as we get out there, starting to get to the ones that are comparable, get an idea of how small Pluto is. There's Pluto there. Um, a little bigger than Italy and California, but not that much bigger. So it gives you an idea of how 
big, I mean, how small Pluto is, you know, compared to things like the United States or stuff, it would be very comparable in size if you put the U.S. across that, because that's just California. Uh, let's go out towards the edge. We've got, I was trying to get a lot of the moons there and some of the smaller planets, Mars, Earth, Venus, as to how big they are. And then we'll start to appear stars, some of the smaller stars. So there are some stars that are really tiny, not that much bigger than a planet. If you look at something like, well, there's Jupiter here. Let's zoom that out a tiny bit. Some of these stars are actually Jupiter-sized. Jupiter is not close to being a star in terms of mass, but in terms of size, it actually is in terms of diameter. The difference is, is that as you add more and more mass, things get compressed. So if we took another Jupiter and put two Jupiters together, it would be more massive, but it wouldn't get any bigger. It would squish down. Kind of like stacking a bunch of pillows as you keep adding pillows on top of each other. They're nice soft ones. Eventually you get enough weight on them that they, they don't grow that as much as putting an extra pillow on it. Uh, let's go out and look at what else we have out here as we get out to some of these larger stars. There's our sun by comparison. So our little tiny human figures long since gone here. But our sun isn't even a very big star as it disappears in size there. Total human height. Okay, that's an interesting. You don't want to be the person on the bottom, but if you stood everybody up, head, that's how tall people would be about the length of a star. They put some very interesting, you know, out, uh, little things that are out there a little bit. So total human height, if everybody stood on everybody else's head going straight up, you would end up with that height, which is comparable to some of these larger stars. But our little sun, still barely visible as we get to these really gigantic Stars. Now our sun disappears, and we get to, where's our largest star there? There it is. The largest known star, VY Canis Majoris. If we put it in the solar system, put it where the sun is right now, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn would all be inside the star. That's how big it is. If you think of our sun, I mean, our sun is, is a good-sized star. This is tremendous. You know, we would not be here. If this star were at the center of our solar system, the only thing that would exist would be the very outer planets, the very outermost planets. Everything else would be within that. And I don't want to take too much more time so we can get on to our lab, but as you go out, and you can play around with this if you choose, you can go out to various different nebulae, and then we'll start to get out to some of the galaxies. Here, there's the... Tarantula Nebula is a very big star-forming region as we start to get some of the small galaxies, larger galaxies, and you can kind of zoom out and look at all the different areas as to how large, the, how big everything is. I'm just going to get out here towards the edge. And then, of course, we have our observable universe. That's part of the thing with light travel time we can't necessarily see the whole universe. If there's a part of the universe, our universe is about 13, 14 billion years old, but there's part of our universe that's 16 billion light years away from us. Light hasn't had time to get here yet. We're still waiting. We've got to wait a couple billion years for it to get here. So sometimes you hear observable universe. There's only part of the universe necessarily that we can observe, and we know nothing about what's out there. And I'm going to zoom it back in. I'm not going to go into the inner ones. 
I can get you the website if you're interested, and you can go down to the much smaller. It'll go down to the atomic and subatomic scales as well. So it's just a chance to kind of look at some of those um, other little uh, bits there. All right. So one of the things I wanted to get across here as I try to finish up chapter one was that universe is really, really empty. If you take a basketball just outside the classroom here for the sun, the earth would be a P probably down at the end, down in the lobby down there. What's in between the, the basketball and the P? Well, two other little P's, Mercury and Venus. That's it. The rest of it is empty space. And it gets worse and worse, that same basketball. If you want to do the nearest star, it's a few thousand kilometers away out in the Middle East somewhere. You've got to travel that far to get to the next nearest star. There's nothing in between those. Oh, there's scattered gas and dust, little bits of stuff, but nothing. It's essentially a complete vacuum. So really, really empty hood. So, I mean, our solar neighborhood, the space around our stars would be, you know, take a dozen basketballs and put them each a few thousand kilometers away. That would be what our local neighborhood looks like. And the only things there would be those stars. And right around those basketballs, you know, within the outer shell of them, would be the planets at that scale. Everything would be really, really close to them. So space is really, really empty, which is really one of the things I wanted to get across uh, here. All right, so we got through chapter one. So this week we're on schedule. Next week I know we'll be behind because we're supposed to do two chapters in one day and we won't get there. So we'll get caught up over the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to get through at least this. Were there any questions? Because I'm going to jump out. I have actually a second lecture to introduce the lab. So I wanted to check. I see none. All righty. Let's go ahead and there's a couple things I wanted to talk about at the lab. I'm skipping part of this because we went over scientific method last time. So I'm actually going to start here instead of at the beginning because I talked about the scientific method, uh, which I often do with this. But I want to mention here is we're going to look at some measurements. And what I have you do in this lab is make a couple of basic measurements. I give you a piece of paper and you're measuring different lines that are on it, how far apart they are. I'm just going to do some quick measurements there. But I wanted to explain a couple of differences between what we mean between exact numbers and measured numbers. So we say that there are 12 eggs in a dozen. Right? If I take a dozen eggs and pass the dozen around, maybe not a good example because if someone decides to drop it, that could change things. But you know, if I pass them around, everybody's going to count 12 eggs. Right? Everybody's going to get the same number. If I have everybody, give everybody a ruler and have them measure the width of the table up here, they're going to vary a little bit. They should be close, but everybody's going to get a slightly different number. Maybe the board is 1.25 meters, maybe someone gets 1.26 or 1.23 or 1.28. You know, those are simple measurement errors. So any measurement is an, is an estimation. Everyone's going to get a different value. There are some exact numbers. There are things that we can count. We have a bicycle in the classroom, right? Fully functional, it's got two wheels. Everybody counts it, everybody gets two wheels on it, right? We're gonna get the same number. There are exactly two. Things that we measure can be very different. Measuring the length of the shadow. Right? 
No matter what object you pick, the shadow is not simply sharp and well-defined. It's always a little bit fuzzy when you get down there to measure it. So there's going to be a little bit of difference in one person measured or a second or a third or a fourth. Everybody's going to get a slightly different number. So we look at error estimates in that. You know, how far off do we think we might be on a measurement? We also look at and part, the second part two of the lab. Part one I'm going to go over when I hand it out. Part two is accuracy and precision. Accuracy is getting close to the target. You're being accurate. You're getting the value you're supposed to. Precision means you might be getting the same value over and over again, but it might be wrong. You're precise. You're repeating your experiment, right? You're measuring your shadow exactly the same, but you got a faulty ruler. Your ruler's missing part of it or something or has this cut off at the end, so all your values are going to be incorrect. So you can still be being precise. You can be doing observations, doing measurements really, really well, but might not be getting close. So you can have measurements that are accurate or precise or both or neither or some combination of them. And the way to think about this and the way I'll give you the example in the lab is with the target. So if you've got a target out there that you're uh, shooting whatever at and you have, you can be very accurate. So these two would be relatively high accuracy. You're getting close to the center of the target. So there you've got a very tight bunch there. It's a little more spread out, but they're all clustered around the center. You're getting, you're getting very accurate. These two are not very accurate. They're near, nowhere near the center. But then you can talk about precision. Are they precise? Well, this group is really spread out. This group is pretty well spread out. They're not precise. You're not getting the same value the same each time. Here, you've got very high precision. You're getting them all very close together. So here, you've got them very close together, but you're not anywhere near the target. Could your sight be off a little bit? Right? Your sight isn't lined up correctly, so even though you're aiming towards the center, you may be hitting up here. Good sign that maybe your sight needs to be, needs to be adjusted. So it's, again, something that you can, you can use, and that's what I'm going to give you a set of targets to look at on there with some marks on them, and you tell me whether they're high or low act for accuracy and precision. So if they're near the center, they're accurate. If they're away from the center, they're low accuracy. If they're grouped tightly together, then they're high precision. If they're not grouped tightly together, then they're low precision. The other part, the, parts, the second parts of the lab, um, have you do some estimates with significant figures. Um, I don't use this a lot in the class, but I like to introduce it because for many of you, it's the only science class you take in college, so I like you to have at least have seen it. So I'm not going to tie you to this for homeworks or other labs or anything. But any measurement is only an estimate. So that means when you plug numbers into your calculator, the answer you get isn't necessarily exact. So as an example, if we travel 150 kilometers in seven hours, I can put those in my calculator and find out that I traveled 21.4285714 kilometers per hour. Most of, those, most of that's meaningless. Because if we traveled, was it exactly 150 kilometers? If it was, if it was exactly 150 kilometers and exactly seven hours, that's right. But do we measure things that exactly? No. Six hours and 50 minutes, so it took us seven hours to get there. Seven hours and five minutes, it took us seven hours to get there. So is it exactly, how, is it exactly seven hours? Is it exactly 150 kilometers or is it 149.8 or 151? 
Again, we tend to call all of those 150. So we can only have our answer with as many digits, as many significant figures as the numbers that we look at. So in terms of this, and I'm going to go over the details coming up, but if we look at this, 150 kilometers has two significant figures. And we divide that by seven, hour, seven hours, one significant figure, our answer can only have one. So 20 kilometers per hour is a better estimate of our speed. Now, some people look at that. Oh, well, you're making it much less accurate. You're cutting out all of this number. The thing is, we don't know these. If this is, if this is exactly 150 and that is exactly in seven, that number is fine. But we don't measure things that accurately. So if we only know it's to 150 to the nearest 10 kilometers, then we can only use this just as, just as accurately. So we have to use uh, the significant figures to determine how many we want to put into our answer. And the rules for doing that are up in a flow chart here. I'll, put this, I'll leave this up while you're working on the lab so you have it there. When you're looking at any number, it's made up of digits. You got 10 possible digits, 0 through 9. That's it. Right? If you make 10, it's a 1 and a 0. If you make 500, it's a 5 and a 0 and a 0. So I can only have these digits. And the flow chart tells you what to do. So first of all, if your number is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9, it's significant. Doesn't matter. Where it is in the number, anything, if it's a 1 through 9, those are always significant. The only thing you've got to look at is the zeros. So zeros, you could look. They can be at the front of the number at the beginning. They can be in between other digits, or they can be at the end. Those are the three possibilities. If they're at the front, they're not significant. So you can write seven. I could put a bunch of zeros before the seven. They don't change anything about the number. They're insignificant. We normally don't put them there. We do when we put decimals, point zero, 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 three. Only thing that's significant is the three. The zeros are just placeholders. So anything at the front of the number is never significant. If they're in between, they're always significant. 305, 305, the zero is important because it's in between two non-zero numbers. So if they're at the front, that's automatic, they're never. If they're in between, that's automatic, they're always significant. The only place where it comes up is at the end of the number. So if, the, if they're at the end of the number and the number contains a decimal point, sorry, do this one, contains a decimal point, then they are significant. Doesn't matter where they are relative to the decimal point. They can be before the decimal point or after the decimal point or a combination. They are significant if there is a decimal point in the number. If there is no decimal point in the number, 5,000, 5,000, no decimal point, those fives are not, those zeros are not significant. And I'm going to give you some examples in the lab to, to work on those. Um, as some examples, just looking at these, 15 here, every single one of these has two significant figures. Do any of them stand out to you that shouldn't have two? From what I gave you with the rules. I'm not trying to trick you. There aren't any, but I mean, I'm saying if you're not sure on any of them, please let me know. I'll be happy to go over why any of them would have two significant figures. All of these, not down here, not these last three, but these five all have two significant figures. The one that I didn't go over was scientific notation. Uh, in scientific notation, you ignore the exponent and just look at what's out here, and those are significant. 
No? All right. Um, the other ones will have different numbers of significant figures. This one, zeros, they're, they're first, right? They're at the front of the number, so they don't count at all. They're not significant. We know the one and the five are significant because they're not zero. So we just got these three at the end to look at. Are they significant or not? And what we go back and look at, they're not between anything. They're at the end of the number, and it contains a decimal point. Therefore, they are significant. So the leading ones do not count. The one and the five do, and the trailing ones do. So you would have five significant figures there. So that means that if you measured something, you measured it to that accuracy. When you're putting those zeros in, you're saying it's not just 0.15, it's 0.15000. Same thing here. 15 looks a lot like that one, but we put three zeros at the end. If we measured something that accurately, it's got the decimal point. They're trailing zeros, but you've got the decimal point. means that all of those numbers are significant. And again, you'll have some examples to work through on that. All right, the last thing I wanted to do was calculations. There's a couple calculations to do on it using some of these numbers. And then put your answer in uh, significant figures. Um, first of all, order of operations. Right? You've probably seen this before. You do parentheses, then you do anything that has an exponent. Then you multiply and divide in order from left to right, and then you add and subtract from left to right. Um, when you're doing multiplication or division, you have to look at your numbers that went in, count how many significant figures were in each, and go with the smallest value. So if we multiply these two numbers and divide by this one, this has five significant figures, three, four. Our calculator tells us that. But if this only has three significant figures, we've got to stop with three for our answer. So you would round that. 339.362599 would round to 339. When you add or subtract, it's a little, more, uh, a little bit different. You don't count the number of significant figures. You look at the decimal places. If you take these three numbers, you take this, you add this, and you subtract that, you get some answer. Well, this one went down to the thousandths place, this one at the tenths, and this one to the ten thousandths place. The one they all have in common is the tenths. We don't know what came beyond that, too. It wasn't measured accurately enough. So we have to stop our answer at the tenths place. So we would round it in this case to 245.5. Okay, so. Let me give you these, but I'm going to go ahead and go over. I want to, I want to explain the first couple questions as well, so because I want to tell you what to do there, and then I have some rulers for the measurement part that you need. One, two, three. On this, there is an answer sheet on the back. The last page is an answer sheet. If you wish to fill in your answers as you go, please copy them on the answer sheet and only turn me in the last page. It makes it a lot quicker for me to go through them if I only have the one page on those. Um, so on these, part two, three, and four I've explained, I've talked about there. Um, part one uses this little diagram on the first page. Question one asks you for the wavelength measurements. Essentially, it's asking you where each of those fits on that scale. You don't need a ruler. All you got to do for the first part is read off on the scale where you find them to be. So if they're between 500 and 600... If they're right in the middle, you'd say they're 550. If they're closer to one, you might say they're 500. You know, where, do you, where do you think they fall on that scale? That's it. You don't need any measurements involved there. Number two asks you, how uncertain are you? 
So where are you going to argue with your neighbor if, for example, you say one is five, say, oh, let's do, which one do you want to do? Green. Green is pretty close to 500. You're going to say it's 505. Is it 510? Is it 515? At what level do you argue with the person next to you and say, I think you're wrong? If they try to tell you it's 550, I hope you're arguing with them, right? You know it's not in the middle. We know it's not 550 because green is real close to 500. But you might argue whether it's 505, 510, or somewhere in that range. So that's all I'm asking is how many nanometers do you think you might be off? Is it 5? Is it 10? Is it 2? How, accurate, how accurately do you think you're able to measure those? Uh, three asks you just a question on how you could do that a little bit differently. Number four is doing the measurements. So for number four, you're actually going to measure three, three pairs of the lines. It tells you which ones. Take, I'll give you a ruler. You just measure how far apart they are and write that number in for number uh, five. It does ask you for an error estimate. You can ignore that. You do not have to put an error estimate for that one. You can just write the number that you get for it. And then, then what you do is for part five is you're going to take what you got from part one, what you determined those to be based on the scale given, and subtract the colors. So take blue, it's asked you to do blue and yellow. Subtract the two wavelengths you measured and divide that by what you measured for distance. How many millimeters, how many centimeters. Please in this one, do use centimeters or millimeters. Don't, use, don't turn around and use the inch part of the ruler. Makes it a lot harder. So um, do do the centimeters or, inch, uh, centimeters or millimeters on this one. And then you divide those for those three pair of lines and you get a value that you can then compare to someone else in the class. And that's part one. And then part two is just doing the targets. Part three is doing the significant figures. Part four is doing the calculations. And I will be happy to come around, of course, and answer questions as we, as we go as well. Let me get this back.